The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening is Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Hey, God. Thanks that you are good, that like we sang, you are our comfort, and that we can always run back to you, that you are full of mercy and grace, and you pour it out over us as your children. Yeah, thanks that it's not about us, but it's about you and what you did on the cross for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How are we doing? Everybody doing well? Yeah? Good. This is where you respond. Uh, So if we haven't met, my name is Cole Simpson. I'm on our lead team here, and I'm excited to get to be with you tonight. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the end of the rows. We're going to be in Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. That should be page 568 if you're using that Bible. So we're going to continue tonight in our book of Ephesians that we've been studying for the last four or five weeks. And so, so far, the ideas that we've hit, the things that Paul has talked about to this new church plant of Ephesus is this idea of unity. He wants us to be unified in Christ, that we as believers have every spiritual blessing, that we have been counted the same as Christ. We have been given his righteousness, and we've been made alive. Even though we were dead in our sins, we have now been made alive in Christ. And today, Paul is going to continue talking about these big mega themes of not just Ephesians, but the New Testament as a whole, and he's going to talk about grace. And so if you've ever been around church in any capacity, you have probably heard the word grace. It's a pretty common thing for us Christians to talk about. And if you've heard the word grace, you've probably heard it defined or talked about with something like, we received something we did not deserve. We as Christians were dead and disobedient, and so Jesus died on the cross and gave us grace, and we were made alive in in him. He gave us, he took our punishment and gave us life. And that's 100% true. 
That is a 100% accurate definition of this word grace. But what Paul is going to do today is say that grace is more than just receiving something. Paul is going to introduce this concept that grace is this idea of going to you and through you. It's this idea that we both receive grace as believers, but it also goes through us to the people around us, to the watching world that sees us as believers. We are called to be the grace of the people we interact with on a day-to-day basis. And so let's start with Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, of you Gentiles... So Paul's doing a few quick things in this first verse that are kind of important. So the first thing he says is, for this reason. So what he's referring to is what Tim preached on last week. This idea that Jesus' blood has unified the Gentile and the Jew. That we have both been brought together and now we are being built to be a place for the Spirit to live. He is unifying the church. And then he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is that he's not a prisoner of Rome. Even though he is under arrest, he's under house arrest with Rome, that Christ Jesus in his sovereignty has decided that Paul should be under arrest. And he says, on behalf of the Gentiles. So on behalf of the Gentiles. This is this idea that for some reason in God's sovereignty, Paul being imprisoned somehow helps the church be unified and brings the Gentiles into the fold. It is both for the good of the church and the good of the Gentiles. And so that's kind of the context that Paul is starting here. And then what Paul's going to do, he's actually going to go off on a tangent for the rest of the verses we're going to talk about today. So he's talking about these Gentiles, and it makes him think about some things that he wants to make sure this Ephesian church knows about. And so Tim next week is actually going to continue with Paul's original thought in verse 14. But today we're going to focus on this tangent that Paul somehow is both inspired but also taken off track with, the cool things about the Bible. So we're going to keep reading in verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So Paul says something here that's, that's pretty easy to miss. He says, the grace that was given to me for you. That's a really weird thing to talk about, right? Because of course Paul received grace. He was a sinner. He deserved death. Of course Paul received grace, but he's saying that the grace he was given was in some way, in some form or fashion, given to him for us, for the Gentiles. Paul is beginning to introduce this idea that grace is meant to flow to us and through us. Grace is meant to flow to us and through us. And this is kind of the thesis statement of Paul's whole idea, his whole tangent that he's about to go off on. So grace is not only meant to be received. So it's this idea that grace should be less of an all-you-can-eat buffet and more of a neighborhood cookout. Right? So he, here's what I mean. If, gra- if you think of grace as a buffet, you think of it only in terms of me. What's good for me? What do I want to eat? It's all about what I can do. It's all about what I can get. And that, that's actually missing a key part of what grace is. Grace is supposed to be for you, but it's also supposed to be for the people around you. So it's not really a buffet. It's more like a neighborhood cookout where there's plenty to eat. 
And you and your neighbors and your friends are made better by this thing that maybe even you put on, right? It's this idea that grace is something that should be received, but it should also be given. It should also be passed on. Let's keep reading in verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man and other generations that has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul is just saying that this mystery has been known to him. It's been revealed to him. In other words, God told him. God told him whatever this mystery is. It's important to distinguish that the Greek word for mystery here isn't really how we would think about mystery. So he's not talking about Sherlock Holmes, who's the criminal. He's not talking about CSI Miami, who killed him. He's not talking about house, we're going to solve it. It's more like, um, it's more like a lamello ball kind of mystery. Okay, let me explain what that means, because you have no idea what I mean by that. So when I say LaMelo Ball mystery, so LaMelo Ball is an incredible basketball player that plays for the Charlotte Hornets. He was the number three pick, big fan, big fan, love the draft. Um, And so last year, the Charlotte Hornets made a huge polarizing pick. They picked LaMelo Ball, and people were like, it's going to be terrible, nobody's going to like him, right? I know, we all thought it was going to be terrible. And so what happened was there was this mystery around whether LaMelo Ball was going to be good or not. It was not widely known, right? And so now, a year later, we all know, I know we all know, that LaMelo Ball is an incredible basketball player. I mean, it's obvious. He's going to win Rookie of the Year, average 21-7-7, big deal. Polarizing prospect, we all love him. So what Paul is saying is, this mystery is is like LaMelo Ball, in the sense that not many people know about it yet. It's kind of like a secret that's best kept. And so what he's doing is he's kind of being an advocate for this mystery and saying, we should all know this is so obvious. He's going to be rookie of the year. Of course, of course. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I've got this mystery that many people don't know about yet, but it's important and we need to talk about it. We need to talk about what this mystery is. And so Paul's going to tell us what this mystery is in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this mystery, this thing that Paul is talking about, is he is referring to the idea that the gospel is not exclusive to the Jews. It includes the Gentiles. Now, most of us know that fact because most of us are not Jewish. I don't think that most of us are going to walk out of this building and text our friend and be like, I have great news. The gospel is not exclusive to the Jews. You are actually allowed to come to church to me. Most of us know this fact, but at the time, this was an incredibly controversial statement, right? So we see multiple times throughout the New Testament, the apostles have to correct both the church and one another. They have to tell each other, no, the Jews have been welcomed in, but so have the Gentiles. They're both supposed to be part of the kingdom of God. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see this over and over again. We see that grace was meant to flow to the Israelites and through the Israelites to the rest of the world. So we see this in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God talks to this guy named Abraham, and he says, 
I am going to bless the world through your descendants. And what he's talking about, he's talking about this idea that from Abraham, there will be this man named Jesus. And Jesus will come and die on a cross, and through his death on a cross, we will all, both Jew and Gentile, be invited in to his family. We see this again in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So again, this idea that not just the Jews, but every nation, every nation will be brought into his family. We see it again in Isaiah 60, verse 3. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What Paul is saying is, grace cannot and should not stop with us. God's intention has always been for his grace to go to people and through people. Uh, The last place I worked, we had this saying or this expression that we said, yes and. Yes and. So the reason we, we pushed this expression so hard was because when you're in a meeting at, and you're trying to come up with new ideas, most people, kind of our basic instinct is to say why we couldn't do it. This is how people are wired. So when you come up with an idea, it's just easier to say, well, that's not going to work because, so we say, but, right? Like, well, but what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what we wanted to say was, yes, and, and that's what Paul is saying here. Yes, of course, grace is meant for you. Of course, it's more than enough for you. Of course, it's going to change your life. And it should not stop with you. Grace is not meant only for you. It is not only meant for you to look at by yourself and never invite other people into. It is supposed to go to you, but then through you. This idea of yes and. Verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden of all ages in God who created all things. So let's focus on this word grace. He says it a few times in this passage. In verse 7, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This, and then in verse 8, he says, this grace was given for me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of his, of Christ. So Paul's continuing to build on this framework, right? This yes and framework. So let, let's take a step back and think about what he's saying here. He said, I was made a minister according to the gift of grace. So before he said, it is by grace that I, by grace, I was given to you. This idea that the grace was for me, but it was also for you right? It's actually by grace that I was given the gospel so that I could give you the gospel. But now he's switched it, right? He says, I was made a minister according to God's grace. So he's bringing it back to this idea that it's a grace to him that he was made a minister. Well, how does that make sense? Why is it a grace to Paul that Paul is a pastor or a preacher to the Gentiles? Let's think about Paul's life, right? Paul was a Judaizer. Paul was a Pharisee, which is just a way to say that Paul did not like the Gentiles. 
he thought the Christianity movement was not a good thing for the church. He was one of the wildest opponents of the church. He hated the Gentiles. He persecuted the church. He murdered Christians. And then on the road to Damascus, Paul is met by Christ, and Christ is going to change everything. Christ is going to take the most advent, the most terrible enemy against the Christian faith and make him into the greatest missionary that we have ever seen. Most of us can probably track our salvation in some way or fashion back to Paul. So what Paul is saying is, it is by God's grace that I even get to be a minister to you because I was so lost. I was so broken. I had no idea. There's no way I could have ever gotten here. It's like Tim talked about on Easter. Paul's saying, I was dead at the bottom of the sea and God picked me up and breathed life into my lungs. And for some reason that could never have to do anything with me, he has chosen to use me. He has chosen to make me a missionary. And this is just a really cool thing because this is the God we serve. Like the comparable, the modern comparison to this would be like if uh, people of ISIS came to America to be missionaries, right? Or white supremacists started to really advocate for racial justice or Nazis in the World War II risked their lives for the Jews. Like this doesn't make sense apart from the gospel. God is taking a man that hates everything about the Gentiles and he is using him to be the main proponent, the main preacher to the Gentiles. Almost every New Testament church can be drawn back to Paul. And Paul is fully aware of this miracle that's happened in himself, right? It's why he calls himself the least of these. It's why he calls himself the least among the apostles, because he knows, apart from grace, I could never be here. This would never make sense. I could never do this in my own power. It's only by the grace that I have received that I could be part of this family. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might not, may now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this word manifold that he uses, the manifold wisdom of God, a better translation from the Greek would be the word multicolored. So it's going off of some of what Tim preached on last week. This idea that the family of God has always been supposed to be part of every tribe, every nation, every demographic. That has always been part of God's plan. And for the Jews, this was controversial because they hated the Gentiles. I mean, they hated the Samaritans who were half Gentiles. So when you get to the full-blown Gentiles, they hated them. And Paul is saying they've always been. They're always were going to be part of the family of God. For us, it may look different. We have different biases and things that we think divide us. But what Paul is saying here is by the wisdom of God, we can now be unified in Christ. We can now be family like he has always intended. Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So all of this is a result of the death and resurrection of Christ. 
Because of Christ, we can now be unified. No matter what separates us, no matter whether it be race or demographic or political ideology, no matter what it is, it should not matter because the death of Christ can unify us. We can have confidence. We can approach the throne and know that we have been, sin- we have been forgiven of our sins. The most important thing about you and I is not our race, our political ideology, any other thing is that we are a sinner in need of a Savior, and because of what God did, we can now be family with one another. And because of that, because of that, the watching world can look into the church and see something that does not make sense. It does not make sense that people of every tribe that has everything different can be family with one another, but we can look back and say, we are family because of Christ. Paul's talking about this idea that the church will have this wisdom that the church, that the world cannot understand because of its unity. And so that's what Paul's talking about in these verses. As Paul is showing in this passage, the gospel being preached, the the gospel being explained, that is God's grace to us. And I was thinking about... um, what Paul was saying, how it applied to us. And I came across this idea of pastoral intent. Pastoral intent is something that Paul does in every letter he writes. In every New Testament, let's try that again. Every New Testament writer does when they write. It's this idea that these writers don't just throw out truth because it's nice. They're not just saying, here's a lot of truth and Isn't that great? They are pointing truth. There's a lot of truth here, but the idea behind it, the pastoral intent is they are doing it because they want our lives, they want the lives of the readers to be changed. They are supposed to take these truths and apply them to their lives. It's supposed to change the way that they live. And so we have just walked through 12 verses of truth. And so now our call as believers is to apply that. This is the idea of grace comes to us. We have been given grace by the word of God. Isaiah 55 would tell us that God's word will never return void. So we know, we know that if God's word is preached, we can take something out of it. And so now we want to take this grace and take it from to us to through us. So how does this change our lives? What does this mean for us today in 2021 in Charlotte, very far from the original church of Ephesus. So what I'm going to do is I want to end today with four ways God's grace moves to us and through us. Four ways that we can apply these universal truths to our life today. So number one, grace produces servants. Grace produces servants. So Paul hits this a little bit in Verse 7, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So this word minister means servant. It can be translated as servant in English. And so what Paul is saying here is that by God's grace he has been made a servant. Not because of anything he could ever do, but through the grace of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit changing him, he has now been made a servant to the people around him. And so for us, this begs the question, or this makes us ask, how has grace made us servants? Has grace produced servants in 
us. And so I think this question, this idea, actually is a really good barometer for how we're doing with Jesus. So when you walk in your house, and whether you're married or you have roommates, and there's dishes there for the 30th time, even though you've had this conversation over and over and over again, is your response, seriously, we're here again, we're doing this again, just do the dishes, buy paper plates, I don't care what we have to do, I just don't want to do this again, or is your response, how can I serve the people around me? And of course, we're not going to be perfect. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about the Holy Spirit is going to change us over time. So what Paul is saying is there's this idea or this truth that as we understand more and more how little we deserve God, how little we deserve grace, more and more in the outworkings of our lives, are we going to care less about what we want? Are we going to care less about our preferences? And we're going to care about how we can serve the people around us like Christ served us. So grace should produce servants. Number two, grace produces missionaries. Grace produces missionaries. In verse 8, Paul says, the grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So in God's grace, he made him a missionary. What does that mean? I think, I think the question that we want to bring out of this is, is grace, is preaching the gospel, is sharing the gospel an obligation or a gift? Is, do you see the gospel, do you see sharing the gospel as a burden or a blessing? So do you have the greatest news in the world that you get to share with the people around you? Because you understand that in grace there is salvation, that in the gospel you have been made alive, not because of you, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf? Or is it an obligation? Do you do enough to check the box, to say, I talked to my neighbor about that, I, I said the right things, I said the right words? Uh, I've talked to a few people about this idea and I think it is, it is pretty common or a pretty normal feeling, at least it's a normal feeling that I feel, this awkwardness of, I don't want to be the awkward Christian guy that's like, have you met my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? I don't want to be that guy, right? And so I think it is easy for me to start to ask the question like, oh, maybe I need to know more Bible or maybe I need to understand something more, be able to say things eloquently. And I just want to free us from that. If you are a Christian, if you have been invited into the family of God, then Christ took you from death to life. He changed you. And so sharing the gospel literally just has to look like, this is my experience. I don't have to know all the answers. I don't have to know the right thing to say. I can literally just say, yeah, there's no way I could be here, but God is slowly changing me. And just be friends with people and just invite them in. Just tell them the truth that you are both learning and believing. You don't have to have the right answer. You don't have to know the right thing to say. I think often we don't have the right answer, and God even uses that in us to help us grow closer to Him. He both uses our mission as grace to the people around us, but also as grace to us to pull Him closer, pull us closer to Him, to help us look more like Him, because we start to get challenged in ways that we've never considered. We've never asked those questions. That's a grace. 
We have the greatest news in the world. It's not an obligation. It's not a checklist. God's not sitting there disappointed in you. He delights in you. He delights in you and He loves you and He wants to just be a part of your life. So what Paul is saying is grace produces missionaries. Number three, grace produces humility. Grace produces humility. I already touched on this, but in verse 8, Paul says he's the least of the saints. This isn't the only time Paul says this. He says it a few times. He says it in 1 Corinthians. He says he's the least of the apostles. In 1 Timothy, he calls himself the worst of sinners. Paul's not placating here. He's not saying the right words. He doesn't know the answer and he's filling in the bubble. What Paul is doing is he's incredibly aware of his sin, of his depravity. And understanding his sin and his depravity, and then understanding the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, what it does is it makes Paul very skeptical of himself and very confident in God. And so that produces this humility. I had a coworker. A friend of mine, I guess they were in charge, so more of a boss. I was under them. Um, and I remember, it's so fascinating to me. So if we haven't met, uh, you don't know this. Uh, I have a power idol. If we have met, you're very aware of this fact. Um, <laughs> so I have a power idol. And so this guy was in charge. And so I remember thinking, he would just always ask our opinions. Like he wanted to know what we thought. And I just was like, why do you care? You get to decide. Like, you're in charge. You don't have to ask anybody's opinion. You just get to do what you want. And I remember thinking, wow, this guy's really humble. And then I started to take a step back and realize that his humility actually both was humble, but it bred humility around him. People around him just naturally started to defer more. They actually trusted him more than they ever would have if he had just come in and said, this is what we're going to do, etc. And he had to do that sometimes. But it's this idea of grace flows to you and through you. So grace produces this humility that flows to you and through you. So practically, what does this look like? It looks like you are much slower to point out the faults in other people than you are to point out the fault in yourself. Right? The gospel would talk about this idea of uh, removing the plank from your eye instead of removing the speck from your brother's eye. So the next time you're in an argument where you were definitely right, and of course you did everything right, and your tone was not wrong, and there's no way I said it that way, um, instead of looking at the other person and saying, well, I know that you're a sinner broken who needs Jesus, so you're off, turning that inwards and saying, the only reason... I'm not dead in my sin is because of Jesus. So maybe, maybe there's a chance I was off here just a little bit. And just start there. And I think if we have that attitude as believers, that will stand out. I think that humility is not normal in our culture. I mean, just think about, at least I'll just say for me, if I had that attitude in every conversation I had, I think that would probably be good for my relationships. And so what Paul is saying is, this grace should produce a humility in us. We should be very aware of our lack and very aware of God's confidence and sovereignty and power and quick to say, maybe I don't have the whole picture. 
Number four, grace prepares us for something, for suffering, not something. Suffering, something. Um, So like this idea of pastoral intent that I talked about earlier, what is Paul trying to do with these verses? I think we see it pretty clearly in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul is sitting in a prison in Rome, uh, house arrest, but under guard, awaiting his execution. Uh, History would say that he probably is going to be executed shortly by a man named Nero. But Paul doesn't mention that much in this book. He says it a few times. He alludes to it like this a few times. And it's not because Paul's suffering isn't real. It's not because he's not going to be executed. He is. He's going to die. But what Paul is doing, what Paul understands as he's looking to the Ephesians and encouraging them and thinking about them, what Paul understands is that his hope is never going to be on this side of heaven. He understands that we are living for a future hope in Christ as believers. Paul's pastoral intent is he's giving us an eternal perspective. Paul's giving us an eternal perspective. So every year, I read this book by C.S. Lewis called A Grief Observed. It's about 70, 80 pages, really good read uh, if you've never read it. And the reason that I read it is because I, at my core, struggle to trust God. I think uh, my sin helps me, makes me believe that God could not be good and the things that have happened to me, whether big or small, be true. And so the reason that I read A Grief Observed is because it's about this man, C.S. Lewis, and he's talking about his wife who dies of cancer. And for 70 or 80 pages, what he's doing is he's wrestling with this idea that how is God good and my wife just died of cancer? Like, how can I be a father who lost the woman that I loved with a child who lost his mother and God be good? And the last line of the book is... Poi si torno el eternal fontana, which means, and then she returned to the eternal fountain. What Lewis is saying, and what Paul is saying, is that grace shifts our perspective. We start to understand that this world was never going to be about us. That we came into the world, we sinned, we turned away from God, and because of that, we live in a broken, messed up, terrible world in a lot of ways. But God, being rich in mercy and showing us grace, sent His Son who died on a cross, and now we have been invited to relationship in Him, and He will redeem it. 
He will fix. Revelation talks about how there will be no more tears. There will be no more death. We will all live perfectly in harmony with God in perfect unity in the most beautiful family that has ever existed. This is why the most terrible thing that has happened in human history, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, can result in the most beautiful thing that will ever happen in history, which is the absolute redemption and peace that is brought about by God when he comes back. And that's our hope. Our hope is not this world and some good things. Our hope is we get to see that God is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do. And so grace gives that eternal perspective that you and I, we can be that awkward person that talks to our neighbor about Jesus again. Because if they think we're weird, it's okay. Because our hope, our identity is never going to be found here. God's grace moves through us and to us. It makes us servants. It makes us missionaries. It gives us humility, and it prepares us for suffering. These are the marks. These marks, these things of grace are what is true of Christians. Not an exhaustive list, but if you are a believer in Jesus, these should be evident in your life. You should see the Lord and the people around you should see the Holy Spirit working this in you over time into fruition. So how do our lives look? Citizens Church, I want us to ask the question, has God's grace produced in us a desire to serve others? Has God's grace made us care about the salvation of the people around us? Do we have the greatest news that the world has ever heard? Has God's grace produced in us a humility, a self-suspicion? Do we care more about the opinions of our community group than our own? Has God's grace prepared us for suffering? That even when we do not know the answer to our why questions, we can run back to the eternal fountain of grace. We can remember what he did on the cross. Those are the signs of grace flowing to you and through you. And if you look at those questions and you say, yeah, I do all those things, then thanks be to God that he took a sinner like you and like me and redeemed us and somehow made us into something that looks more like him. And if the answer to that question is no, then I encourage you, I invite you to feel this grace tonight for the first time, this week, to fully step into the grace that is fully offered to you. And all you have to do is believe that Jesus is your Lord and submit to that. Let's pray. Hey God, thank you that you are so rich in mercy and grace, that you love us more more than we could ever know. That you not only save us, but you invite us in to your family. That you allow us to be a part of the things you are doing for the world. That we get to be a part of your plan. Thanks that it's not about us, that we don't have to be perfect, but we're allowed to be in process, and that your Holy Spirit is working 
in us if we are believers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.